I invite you now to turn to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1. If you have the Pew Bibles, that is on page 909. We'll be concluding Acts 1 this morning as we look at verses 12 through 26. Please pay special attention to the reading of God's holy word. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in the ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. <clears throat> Father, would you continue to speak to your church through your word, through our diving in to this great book of Acts. God, may we be reminded that you are the one who has established and will continue to preserve your church. May we trust you. God, may we be fed by you this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> But what do you usually do when you're waiting for something big? Those of us who are married, maybe you think back to your wedding day. Think about the, the months and the, the weeks leading up to that. What did you do? A lot of details, right? Easy to stress out. I was on the phone with uh, Zach Hartle yesterday. Zach and Alicia are getting married here on Saturday. And 
Zach was talking about how he had this short window of time yesterday and he was going to do all this electrical work and get all the trim done in his basement so his flooring guy could come in. And then he called one of his other friends. He's like, dude, you're getting married. Like, you can do that after you come back from your honeymoon, right? And he was like, oh, yeah. Like, there's no there's no hurry. Don't need to, to lose sleep over that. I need to focus on the main thing. Or maybe it's a trip that you're preparing for and you're so excited you can't sleep. I've probably told this story before when I was in grade school, I was going to Wisconsin Dells for the first time and I, I probably slept that night, but it felt like I didn't get a single second of sleep. I was just so excited anticipating this big thing or preparing for the birth of a child. There's a lot of work. There's a lot of preparation, getting the nursery ready, just anxiety about how your life is going to change. And we tend to do lots of different things in those situations. But how many of us would say that we pray? How many of us would say we slow down and we take time to trust God and rely upon him and depend upon him in prayer? And if that's not the answer, then why not? Why doesn't prayer play a bigger role in our anticipation of things? Are we functionally just deists? Meaning that we believe in this supreme being who is out there, but that he doesn't intervene in our world. Maybe we say he created everything, but then he just let it go. Like he wound up the clock and the clock is just ticking until time runs out. As if God has no control in the world. And as if our prayers have no power to change things. Well, this wasn't the mentality of the disciples here in Acts chapter one. Now, don't get me wrong. We've said this and we'll continue to say this. They did not have it all figured out. We saw this last week in their question to Jesus about the kingdom of God. If you look back up at verse 6, they asked, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? We talked about how that question was misguided. We talked about how, and we will continue to talk about how it's easy to romanticize the early church. In fact, look at the cover of your worship guide. You may have already read this as you came in. So John Stott says in his intro to his Acts commentary, he says, it has, in fact, been a salutary exercise for the Christian church in every century to compare itself with the church of the first and to seek to recapture something of the confidence, enthusiasm, vision, and power. At the same time, we must be realistic. There is a danger lest we romanticize the early church, speaking of it with bated breath as if it had no blemishes. For then we shall miss the rivalries, hypocrisies, immoralities, and heresies which troubled the church then as now. Nevertheless, one thing is certain. Christ's church had been overwhelmed by the Holy Spirit who thrust it out to witness. So on the one hand, brothers and sisters, let's recognize that the apostles were sinners in need of God's grace, just like us. But let's also recognize the unique position that they were in. We're going to see that in this passage today. They walked with Jesus from the beginning of his earthly ministry all the way through his resurrection and ascension. And now they're waiting for the promise of the Holy Spirit, which Jesus told them in verse 5, they would be baptized with not many days from now, that was on the day of his ascension, 40 days after his resurrection. 
So here we find them in this 10-day window between the ascension and the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit would fall. And what do we find them doing? Look at verse 12. They returned, we see kind of the, the where and the who here. They returned to Jerusalem for the Mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away, about a kilometer and when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. And then it lists all of the disciples here, 11 of the disciples. <clears throat> and it says that they were all with one accord. Also lists the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. So we kind of get the, the who, the where and the who here. And then we see their activity in verse 14. It says with one accord, they were devoting themselves to prayer. Now, some other good English translations say that they were continually united in prayer, or they, or they were joined together constantly in prayer. However we translate this, the emphasis is on the togetherness and the steadfastness or the perseverance in prayer. They're united and they're persevering. Now, Luke describes the fellowship of believers at the end of chapter 2, which we're going to see in a few weeks, as those who are Devoted, same word here, devoted to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers, which those things we call the ordinary means of grace. They're devoted to those things. Chapter 6, when the deacons are chosen to serve tables, it says the, the apostles weren't going to give up preaching and prayer to serve tables. Now, the serving of tables is a worthy calling, but it was not what God had called them to do. They said, we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Now, notice their devotion to prayer here immediately on the heels in chapter one here, immediately on the heels of the angel telling them not to stand around looking into heaven. They got busy. They got busy praying. Now, you're probably going to get tired of us up here talking about the unrepeatable events in the book of Acts. But devotion to prayer is not an unrepeatable event. Devotion to prayer wasn't a one-time thing that just these super apostles, these ones who were close to Jesus, wasn't just something that they did. We're going to see one of those unrepeatable events at the end of this chapter, but this is not one of them. Devotion to prayer must characterize the church of Jesus Christ down throughout the ages. And it has been our desire as a church to be a praying church. We had a specific emphasis on that this summer, knowing that this is an area we need to grow in. We need to continue to grow in and be steadfast. And we read the book, A Praying Church. It was a great time of encouragement to gather together at our summer conversations and talk about prayer and, and pray. And reading about it doesn't make it happen. And talking about it doesn't make us devoted to it. Doing it does, right? Prayer is one of those things we could read a bunch of books about and we could talk about till we're blue in the face. But at the end of the day, you just have to do it, right? You just have to gather together with people and or get, meet with the Lord individually and pray. We had our first uh, men's prayer time, morning prayer time this week. It was very encouraging to see 10 guys show up at 6 a.m. to pray. It wasn't because we guilted them into it. We didn't offer them any gift cards or anything. Uh, there wasn't any, any special perks, and it wasn't because we're all morning people, especially me. You all know that. 
But hopefully, it was because we believe that God, this is what God is calling us to do. He's calling us to gather together as his church and to pray. And it's not just that time, right? We, we seek to, to pray in the other times that we're gathered together as a church. That's what we see in this passage, isn't it? Not so important that it's emphasized here in this text as the apostles are waiting for Pentecost. And it gets at what I think should be our main takeaway from this text. So if you're taking notes here, you want to write something down, this is kind of the main, main idea. It's a little like disjointed with some parentheses and stuff. So I'll explain it and, and walk us through this. But here's what I think the main point of this text is. The advancement of the mission of the triune God. We've talked about this a bit the last couple of weeks. The advancement of the mission of the triune God, which is what Acts is all about. Slash the mission of the church, right? The mission of the triune God and the mission of the church are the same thing. The gospel, you put this in parentheses, the mission of the church, the gospel going to the ends of the earth. Disciples being made and taught and baptized. Okay, so the advancement of that mission the Great Commission, is fueled by dependence in prayer upon the God who ordains the ends and the means. So the advancement of the mission, if you just want to, you know, Great Commission, is fueled by dependence in prayer upon the God who ordains the ends and the means. And what does that mean? It means that God is going to fulfill his purposes. He's going to accomplish his mission. The earth is going to be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea and his elect will be gathered in from all the nations. These ends or these purposes will be accomplished through the means, the circumstances, the events, the people, the means that God has also ordained prayer, and the preaching of the gospel through spirit-empowered witnesses. We need to see how those things tie together. I think this is really Acts in a nutshell. How does God accomplish his mission through the means that he has ordained? Through his people who are praying and preaching and walking with him. This transitional 10-day period here between the Ascension and Pentecost really highlights this, but it also addresses a glaring problem. Now, Luke doesn't explicitly, explicitly state the problem in the first paragraph in verses 12 through 14, but it's there. And what is it? I already mentioned it earlier. It's that there's only 11 apostles listed. This is a problem because it's a picture of Israel being incomplete. There are multiple places in the New Testament where the 12 apostles are connected with, or uh, they, there's a parallel significance with the 12 tribes of Israel. You can't miss that. There's, there's a significance there. Jesus talks about it. It's highlighted other places later in the New Testament. The 12 apostles and the 12 tribes of Israel have a parallel significance. So with one apostle missing, Judas, there is a gaping hole in the Old Testament expectation of the restoration of Israel. And the Holy Spirit here through Luke is going to help us see how this whole thing was not an accident. It's not that the apostles are like, what are we going to do now? They're not scrambling to figure out because Judas went and wrecked God's plan. It's exactly 
the opposite. That's what Luke's highlighting. Peter stands up here in the company of 120 brothers and sisters and gives the first of his many speeches in Acts. Now, we don't know exactly what prompted this speech, but if I can be permitted to use my imagination a little bit here, perhaps this upper room where they're gathered is the same upper room where Jesus gathered with his disciples on the night that he was betrayed. When he said, as Matthew records in Matthew 26, 21 and following, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, is it I, Lord? He answered, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The son of man goes as it is written of him. Don't miss that. The son of man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been better for him if that man had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. Matthew said, The Son of Man goes as it is written. And Luke says in his gospel account, The Son of Man goes as it has been determined. Two ways of kind of saying the same thing. The disciples were there that night. They heard Jesus say these words. They know, therefore, that Judas's betrayal was no accident. But the 120 gathered in the upper room, the rest, they weren't there that night. Perhaps the apostles were seated around the table where they ate the Last Supper with Jesus. Now there's an obvious glaring absence where Jesus had been seated, but there was another absence. The place where Judas, the betrayer, had been seated. Maybe there's a lot of chatter among the people going on about this. And Peter, who was never short of words, finally stood up and said, okay, everybody's talking about this, right? Where's Judas? What happened to Judas? He stands up and he addresses what the promised coming of the Spirit is supposed to mean in relation to this. Verse 16 is a reminder, just as Jesus said, that he would go as it is written. Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. Verse 17, then, is Peter's reminder that Judas's apostleship was not an accident. These words, numbered and allotted, point to the divine sanctioning of Judas. And Peter, probably with much grief, reminds them that Judas shared in this ministry. For three years, he was side by side with the apostles, and no one had a clue until that last night. No one had a clue what was in Judas's heart. That's terrifying, actually. There may, for Peter, have been an extra element of grief as he realized that but for the grace of God and the post-resurrection restoration by Jesus, that Peter's denial of Jesus and Judas's betrayal were not categorically much different. Think about Peter describing that betrayal of Judas to a room full of people, knowing what he had recently done. 
But at the same time, him praising God for what he had done in restoring him. That had to be pretty emotional for Peter. Now, most English translations we see in the ESV here have a parentheses around verses 18 and 19. This suggests that Luke is giving commentary to his readers about Judas's betrayal and his suicidal death and the purchase of the field with the blood money. Uh, these are events that would have been commonly known. So they put a parentheses around it because of, of some of the language things that, that Luke is explaining. But then he goes on in and continues in verse 20, continues Peter's speech with a quote from two different Psalms. First, Psalm 69, verse 25 is, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it. And then Psalm 109, verse 8, let another take his office. These Psalms emphasize Judas being cut off and then him needing to be replaced. Now, it can be easy to just glance over these verses as we read through this, but I think we would do well here to pause and consider a few things. First, Judas's betrayal was not just the rogue actions of some madman. Jesus said, and Peter re reiterates, that it was in fulfillment of the scriptures. Divine sovereignty. God's hand was all over Judas's betrayal. But the second thing we must remember is that nowhere is Judas given a pass for his actions. Peter doesn't say, this was to fulfill the scripture, therefore, well, Judas isn't accountable. We'll see in verse 25 below that he turned aside and went to his own place. It's hard to imagine that meaning anything other than Judas going to hell. He turned aside. He is accountable to God for his betrayal. So we have divine sovereignty on the one hand and human responsibility on the other. As we read through the scriptures, that always has to be a grid with which we're looking at things. God's sovereign hand, sometimes indirectly behind the scenes, sometimes very outward and direct, but he's always working. And then we always see the human actors. We see them fulfilling what God has promised, but them still being sinful and them being accountable for their actions. Now, the history of the church has been filled with schisms and, and lots of, lots of pa pages have been filled with trying to figure this out, right? We have to be able to hold those two things together in tension. We're never going to completely reconcile them and figure them all out. God is sovereign and we are responsible for our actions. And at some point, as John Piper says, we have to draw a line in the sand and we can get up as close as we can to that line. And then we say mystery, right? And that's okay. We don't have to have that all figured out. But in this passage, we really do see those two things playing out. And then for us, this should give us pause as we consider our propensity to turn and to go our own way. Now, this doesn't mean that we should fear that we might betray Jesus and end up in hell. But it's that we wouldn't ignore the clear warning from Judas's life either. One commentator named Brian Vickers in the ESV expository commentary, he says, Our own betrayals of Jesus, though less dramatic and prophetic, are betrayals nonetheless. Every time we reach for something beyond or beside Jesus in order to satisfy a longing and desire, which always means reaching for something far less than him, we are asking for our own version of 30 pieces of silver. 
Judas is an example of trying to gain the world at the expense of one's soul. Judas is an example of trying to gain the world at the expense of one's soul. And that, we must realize, is no less a temptation for any one of us today in our age. Our attempts to gain the world might come in the form of money or power or relationships. And those things, if we pursue them to the end, could come at the expense of our souls. Whatever it might be for us, may we be reminded, like Peter was, that but for the grace of God go you and I. May we pray for our protection, both individually and as a church, from these temptations. May we look to the sovereign Lord who guides and directs his church. That's what we see in these last six verses. They trust the Lord to provide Judas's replacement. And they lay out the requirements for that apostolic office in verses 21 and 22. It had to be someone who had accompanied them during the time that Jesus went in and out among them, beginning from the baptism of John, so from Jesus' baptism, until the day when he was taken up, until his ascension, one of them must be a witness to his resurrection. If you want an argument for why there are not apostles today, right here, okay? No one living today did these things. No apostles. I'm not going to get into that really much, but that's where I would take you. So according to these requirements, there were two available men in that upper room. Now, we don't know anything about them besides their names. Shows us that this was not some popularity contest. They weren't trying to decide between these two high rollers, right? They also didn't ask them to fill out their Myers-Briggs uh, or their DISC profile and say, how are you guys going to fit in with the team? Not that there's anything wrong with that, right? But it wasn't this thing like, oh, we got we to gotta have this big planning session and we got to figure all this out, right? No, they prayed. Verse 24, they prayed and they said, oh, Lord, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all. And I want to pause there. You might want to write this down. I think this is, is pretty incredible. The way this is, is used here, this, this word could be a title. We could capitalize this and say, the Lord, the knower of hearts. We could call God the knower of hearts as a title. That's kind of how it's used here. This word is used later in Acts 15, which is the only other time it's used. And it's a great reminder that God is the great heart knower that nothing is hidden from him it's not just that he is sovereign in power to do all things he knows what's in all of our hearts which is both frightening and comforting at the same time right we can't hide from him but it is also comforting to know okay god knows my heart he knows what i'm thinking he knows what i'm feeling anything that i'm going to do i'm already fully exposed before him, why not pray, right? Why not cry out to him for forgiveness? Why not ask him to help me in a situation where I know that I'm weak instead of pretending that I'm strong and that I can like do something that on my own strength? He already knows your weakness. He knows what you need. He's the knower of your heart. So pray and cry out to him. The apostles knew that. 
So their prayer that the knower of hearts would show them which of the two between Barsabbas or Matthias to know which of the two he has chosen to take the place in the ministry and the apostleship that Judas turned aside from. This was a quite fitting prayer. And then we get this curious practice in verse 26. They cast lots. This is an Old Testament practice that was used in a few places, most notably in Leviticus chapter 16 on the Day of Atonement. When there were two goats, they cast lots. Which of the goats would be slaughtered in the temple and which of the goats would have the sins of the people symbolically placed on it and be sent out into the wilderness? Then in the book of Joshua, casting of lots is used to, to divide up the land among the 12 tribes. So it might be a stretch, but there could be some symbolism here of, of the choosing of, of the 12 tribes of Israel. And then this practice being used here. Um, again, this is, this is an Old Testament practice. It's also acknowledged in Proverbs 16.33 that the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Again, you have human action and divine sovereignty. People are doing something to help make this choice, but ultimately the decision is from the Lord. So this is not an unbiblical practice. Some people want to criticize this and say they shouldn't have done this. This was a a practice that was sanctioned. And in God's providence, he both allowed and worked through this method. Here in Acts chapter 1, the lot fell on Matthias, meaning that he was chosen in whatever method this was. We don't know. Uh, Sometimes there were stones that were used maybe like kind of like using a coin like flipping a coin there were two different uh, sides that had different things on them or sticks could have been used in some certain way basically this could be like the modern equivalent of of drawing straws and whoever gets the shortest straw is picked Uh, before the service i was with ethan and and donovan and we were trying to decide who was going to go on which side for uh, for serving the Lord's Supper. And I was like, oh, let me cast a lot quick. And I had the card and I was like, I'll flip. I didn't do it. But, you know, but that would have, that would have been, you know, we've done things like that in games and different things. That's basically the equivalent of what they did. There's nothing like, there's nothing magical about the process. It was just doing something like that. And they trusted that God was going to speak through that process and that God was going to give them direction. But again, that's not something that's sanctioned for us. After this, we don't see this practice of casting lots being used anywhere in the New Testament. So I'm not advocating uh, for that practice. But we see here then that the restoration of the 12 is complete. The symbolic restoration of Israel has been accomplished by the sovereign Lord to whom the apostles and those gathered with them devoted themselves in prayer. This paves the way then for the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, which we'll see next week. As we close, I want to come back to what I suggested was the main point of this text. That the mission of the triune God, which he has given to his church, that mission is fueled by dependence in prayer upon the God who ordains the ends and the means. While we are not waiting around for the coming of the Holy Spirit in a second Pentecost, as we'll be seeing next week, that is an unrepeatable event. And we're not going to start casting lots for our future elder candidates. We should still devote ourselves to prayer, acknowledging that our Lord is the knower of hearts, that every decision is from him. We should be reminded as we pray and as we wait 
and trust him to fulfill his purposes in the world. As we sow seeds and we trust him to bring the growth. As we seek to live for Christ in a world that is increasingly hostile to the gospel. We should be reminded that the same Christ is building his church as he has promised he would do 2,000 years ago. Praise God for what he has done these last six years in our midst. May we pray and may we wait and may we continue to trust him for another six years and then another six and another six as we seek him and as we look to him in prayer. Let us pray. Father, thank you for the fact that this passage has been recorded for your church to read throughout the ages. That we can be encouraged by the early church. We can be encouraged by those who were probably scared in some ways, who were filled with uncertainty about the future. Those who had heard your promises, but were uncertain about how those things would play out. Those who, like us, need to trust you, to look to you in prayer, to wait upon you. God, as we seek to be a part of the mission of the gospel going forward to the ends of the earth. May it not be about human ingenuity. May it not be about programs and methods to reach the lost. May it be fueled by a desperate dependence upon you in prayer. As we wait, as we seek you, as we trust you, God, to do what you alone can do. Thank you for your grace in Christ. Thank you for the life we have in him, that we might go and share that with others. We pray in his name. Amen.